One of the greatest leaders to have ever walked across the pages of the Bible is the man named Moses. He was sovereignly selected to liberate the children of Israel from their Egyptian captivity. No sooner had they been set free that they faced some conflict. The Red Sea was in front of them. Pharaoh and his army was behind them. The people looked to Moses. Moses looked to the Lord. The Lord split the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross on dry ground. Once those Egyptians made their way into the riverbed, it was God who caused those raging waters to collapse on top of them. On the other side of the Red Sea, the people praised God and they applauded their leader, Moses. His popular public opinion didn't last very long, though. They'd been traveling for less than a week and they didn't have any water, and so they complained against their leader. They said to Moses, uh, you are a lousy leader. I don't know why you brought us out here. You should have just left us uh, enslaved in Egypt. They began to complain. Moses went to the Lord and the Lord provided water, not just for the people, but also for the livestock. When I stop and think about that, I come to this conclusion. It's one thing to deal with external conflict. It's another thing to deal with internal conflict. It's one thing to have to deal with Pharaoh and his army and the Red Sea. It's another thing to have to deal with the grumbling and complaining of the own, of his own people of faith. I think that it's far easier to deal with external strife versus internal struggle. I think that's as true today as it was 3,500 years ago. You show me a married couple and they're facing external struggle and strife, I'll tell you that many times that can galvanize that husband and wife, bring them closer together, and they can be stronger on the other side of that experience. But that same husband and wife begin to have internal strife, backbiting and, and fighting one with the other, husband against wife, that's a perfect recipe for disaster. What's true in the home is also true in the church. A church that is faced with external conflict, that things in the culture are coming against the church, that has a way of strengthening the brothers and sisters, uniting them and galvanizing them as a faith family. But you show me a church that has internal strife, where groups and cliques and division and gossip and backbiting, that's a perfect illustration of certain destruction. It's one thing to face external conflict. It's another thing to face internal conflict. As I stop and consider this, I realize that I've got to come to this one conclusion, that God's people just like to gripe. I think that's as true today as it was 3,500 years ago. It doesn't matter what's it about. It doesn't matter what the subject matter. It doesn't matter the experience. God's people just like to gripe. And criticism is costly. I suspect that the costliest criticism of Israel came when Moses sent out 12 spies to scope out the promised land. There were about two years in this Exodus experience and Moses dispatched 12 spies. They all came back and they had a, a favorable report. They said that the land was plush and plentiful. Literally, they said it was flowing with milk and honey. But the majority of them tend to be exact. The majority came back and they said, even though it's plentiful and even though it's plush, there's no way we can take the land. 
The cities are far too fortified. The inhabitants are like giants. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes. There's no way that we can stand up against them. Only two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, come back and they said, we can take this land, not because of our military might, but simply because of the promise of God. God has declared this is the land of promise. He will give it to us. We've just got to take God at his word. Apparently, the majority had forgotten Exodus chapter 33. It's there where the Lord promises to go before the people and evict the inhabitants of the promised land. He said there are nations there and and they think they have squatters rights. They think that they can inhabit that land just because they're there. I'm going to go in and kick them out, give them eviction papers, and I'll do that. I'll fight your battles. I'll go before you. But the majority of the people, they didn't take God at his word. They began to sow seeds of doubt among the people. On that fateful day when Moses was about to lead the charge into the promised land, he began to charge and realized there was nobody behind him. He was an army of one. Nobody else was with him. He turned around and he said, what are you all doing? Why don't we go? And they said, there's no way. We cannot take this land. It was in that moment that their criticism of Moses and his leadership It was costly. In fact, the Lord said, because you have not obeyed me, I will do the very thing you fear. Not one of this generation will step foot in the promised land, except for Joshua and Caleb, who honored my word. Everybody else of this generation will lie dead in the wilderness. You stop and think about that. That's an enormous amount of death. For the next 38 years, the Israelites went in circles in the desert. For the next 38 years, people dropped like flies. We are told that when they had left Egypt, there were 603,000 men over the age of 20. Now, if you just do the math of 603,000 men who die in a span of 38 years, that is 43 funerals a day. 43 funerals a day. I'm assuming that most of those men, if not all of those men, were married. And God said not one person of this generation, male or female, will enter into the promised land. So when you add their wives, that's 86 funerals a day. If I was running a funeral business, I would want to live in this moment of history because I can make a loot of money. 86 funerals a day. Can you imagine What that does to the human psyche. Can you imagine what that does to mentality? When everybody, as they're wandering around aimlessly, they're walking around and Aunt Susie just killed over and Uncle Phil just killed over and everybody's dying and everybody's going, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? People are dropping like flies. By the time you get to a place like Numbers chapter 20, it's near the end of that 40-year journey. Moses and Miriam and Aaron are still leading the charge. Moses is about 120 years old. The next youngest person cannot be any older than mid to late 50s. Just do the math. When they left, the person had to be under the age of 20. They've been wandering around for the better part of 40 years And so that individual has to be somewhere in the mid to late 50s. 
And so you talk about a generation gap. Moses is 120 and the next oldest person is about 59 years old. I mean, we think sometimes today that it's tough for the builder generation to accurately communicate with millennials. That's nothing compared to what Moses had to do. He had to try to talk to people literally that were more than half his age. He had to try to lead them and they were a bunch of know-it-alls. They knew everything. They could do it better than Moses. And Moses had to try to communicate with them. By the time you get to Numbers chapter 20, there's a huge generation gap. And if you think that by the time you get to Numbers 20, you're going to see Moses demonstrating exemplary leadership and that this new generation will learn from the mistakes of their parents, if you think that's what's going to happen, you're dead wrong. This morning, I want to tell you one of the most shocking stories in all the Bible. Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 to 13. When you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Numbers chapter 20, let me begin at verse 1. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, And they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Now, there was no water for the community. The people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and they said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes it will pour out its water. You'll bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and the livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he showed himself holy among them. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. In the opening line of our passage, we're told that the Israelites came to the desert of Zin. They stayed there at Kadesh, and Miriam died and was buried. I don't think that you and I can overestimate the grief and the sadness that Moses and Aaron must have uh, felt 
with the death of their sister. Miriam had been with Moses literally since day one. She was there standing on the banks of the Nile River when Pharaoh's daughter took baby Moses out of that papyrus ark. She had been with Moses literally every day of his life. In fact, after the Red Sea miracle, it's Miriam who leads the praises and the celebration, the singing and the dancing as the people gather to worship the Lord and applaud Moses, their leader. Miriam had been there every single day. Undoubtedly, Moses talked to his sister on a regular basis. Now, Moses is surrounded by death. I've already told you. In 38 years, on average, there's 86 funerals a day. That's got to do something to the leader's mentality. I mean, Moses is saying, I'm the leader of this bunch, and everybody is dying. And now... Even while he's surrounded by death, death rudely barges in his house and takes the life of one that he dearly loves. It's in this moment that Moses feels the real sting of death. We would agree that it's, it's sad when our friends, when uh, other people that we know pass away, but when someone we dearly love, someone we treasure, someone we value, when that person is taken from us, there is a deep sting of death that comes into our heart and our spirit. Moses must have been grieving. I don't think that we can overestimate the level of grief that Moses must have felt. It's at this moment that some of you can relate to Moses. You know what it's like to lose a sibling that you dearly love. Maybe it's an older sister. Maybe it's a younger brother. Somebody that always had your back. Somebody that was always there for you. You spoke to that sibling every day of your life. And then your sibling was taken from you. And there are times when you'll even pick up the phone to call and then you'll think to yourself, what am I doing? There's no way. They're in heaven right now. They're not going to answer the phone. Because you're so accustomed to how life used to be and new normal is tough. You can relate to Moses. He's grieving. His brother Aaron must also be grieving. In verse 2, there's no water. Okay, it's nothing new. That's happened before. I mean, God's people are in the desert for crying out loud. That's a common practice for there not to be water. But every time, God's always delivered. Now, you would think that this younger generation would cut some slack to Moses. After all, he is grieving the death of his sister. And you would think that they would remember the provision of God that God had given to their parents. And if God gave it to their parents, then certainly God will give it to them. And you would think they would say, you know what? We don't have any water right now. That's not a problem because God will deliver. He's been delivering faithfully for the last 40 years. He'll continue to deliver because the best indicator of future activity is past experience. And so they must have thought to themselves, listen, it's okay. It'll be all right. Let's just cut Moses some slack. And if you think that happened, you got a rude awakening coming. They brought the whole truckload of criticism. 
Moses, you are lousy. Moses, you don't know what you're doing. We should have died with our brothers and we should have died with our parents in the desert. Furthermore, we should have just stayed back in Egypt because we remember those teenage years. We remember when we were there in Egypt. Listen, we had grain and we had palm granites. We had grapefruit and grapevines. We had everything to eat. And now here we are and we don't have any food. And guess what, Moses? We don't have any water either. Now, you would think that they would have learned, but they didn't. As I read that, I realize that criticism is rarely creative. If you stop and think about when people are critical, it's very rarely creative. It's pretty much rehashing the same old things all over again. And that's what happens here. In verse 6, Moses does not retaliate with words. Instead, he responds in prayer. That's good leadership. Moses and Aaron go to the tent of meeting. That's the place where God had met with them. The glory of the Lord came down upon that tabernacle. And that's the place where historically God would meet with Moses and speak to him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So the Lord gives three simple instructions to Moses. Number one, take the staff. Number two, gather the people. Number three, speak to the rock. Simple, straightforward. Anybody could get it. I mean, this is elementary level kind of stuff, right? I mean, anybody could understand. It's not that God stuttered. It's not that he was a little fickle. It's not that Moses was fuzzy. It's not that anybody was unclear. It was, it was very, very clear what needed to happen. Number one, get the staff. Number two, gather the people. Number three, speak to that rock and water will gush forth. So Moses takes the staff. Moses gathers the people. So far, two for two. And then we read, Moses began to speak to the people. Whoa, Moses, time out. Push the pause button. God didn't say anything about speaking to the people. He said, speak to the rock. I realize, Moses, people can be dumb as rocks at time, but clearly, don't get misunderstood. Don't get, don't get confused about this. God did not say, speak to the people. He said, speak to the rock. I wish there are times that God would have recorded the scripture for us to hear and not just read. If that had happened in this moment, you and I would hear the frustration and the dripping disdain of Moses when he approaches the people. And he says with great aggravation, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? You bunch of know-it-alls. Who do you think you are? You've been criticizing me just like your mama did, just like your daddy did. I want to give you a piece of my mind. Should we bring you water out of this rock? And in that moment, I want to say, Moses, Moses, chill, baby, chill. Hold up just a second. You're on the verge of blasphemy. Did you hear the pronoun that he used? Must we bring you water out of this rock? Moses, you know better. Every miracle is from God and God alone. God is the only one that can get the credit. God is the only one that can get the praise. It, it, it's true that God may work to you, with you, and through you, but at the end of the day, it's only God who gets the glory, only God who gets the praise. It's not a collaborative effort. It's not that we do this. No, God did this. Moses, you're on the verge of blasphemy. In this moment when Moses, who is normally very meek and mild and humble, 
a great servant leader, in this moment, Moses wells up with arrogant anger. It's almost as if he's saying, this is my mission, my ministry, my people, my problem, my issue. I'm going to take care. I'm going to take God's place. I'm going to be God right now. And I'm going to tell you stuff that God wants to tell you, but he won't tell you. I'm going to tell you some things right now. I'm going to take the place of God. That's a dangerous spot to be in. Because pride always comes before the fall, right? Moses then takes some editorial license with the very word of God. The instructions are very clear. Get the staff, gather the people, speak to the rock. He gets the staff, he gathers the people, but he doesn't speak to the rock. He then, out of frustration, he raises that staff and he strikes the rock, not once but twice. He changes the word of God. My friends, that is extremely dangerous. As if to say, I know better than God. I can edit what God has said. Let me really do what I want to do instead of doing what God has told me to do. So he strikes the rock not once but twice. The most amazing part of the passage is that water actually gushes and flows. That's amazing. See, what you expect to happen is for nothing to happen. Because Moses didn't do it the way God told him to. You expect for not one drop of water to come from that rock. But what actually happens? The rock flows with water. It's almost as if God says, I'm not going to punish the entire crowd for the arrogant anger of one individual. So by his grace, he gives water. And I promise you that Moses is about the, uh, the, the most surprised of the entire group. He thought to himself, wow, that actually worked. I mean, what you think is going to happen is that Moses is going to whack that rock time and time and time and time and time and time and time again and nothing happens. But Moses strikes it twice. Here comes water. And Moses must have thought, hey, look at what I can do. I can defy God and live. I can do it my way. I can do what I want to do. All I got to do, God tells me to do something. I can just rearrange it and change it and do it my own way. And still, all's well that ends well. The people drank water, the livestock drank water, and everybody praised Moses. Everybody except God. Verse 12. Moses, because you did not trust me enough, because you did not honor me as the holy God, you will not lead these people into the land I've given them. The place was called Meribah. It's there that they quarrel with God and God showed himself to be holy. There's more than one person who's walked away from this passage indicting God. God, it doesn't seem that the punishment fits the crime. Moses is just having a bad day. Moses has stockpiled days upon days, years upon years of faithful leadership. 
He's done it the right way numerous times. There have been numerous times he could have lost it, but it's on this day that he's having a bad day. And God, furthermore, you've got to remember that he's grieving the death of his sister. People do strange things when they grieve. Maybe he's just acting this way out of grief. And furthermore, God, you've got to remember and understand he's surrounded by death. 86 funerals a day for 38 years. That's got to do something to a man's, a man's mentality. And so God, you got to cut this guy some slack. It's one bad day. And, and, and also God, he got two out of the three, right? I mean, you got to give him some credit. He did take the staff and he did gather the people. That's two out of three, right? Can you give him some credit? If he's a baseball player and he hits two out of three, he's in the hall of fame. So God, why do you demand such perfection out of your servant? And if you're not careful, you can try to defend our friend Moses. If you're not careful, you can try to defend the blatant disobedience of our friend Moses. And if you're not careful, you can try to defend the blatant disobedience in your own heart. As I think about this story, I have three observations that I want to share with you quickly. The first observation is this, that forgotten flaws can be fatal. Forgotten flaws can be fatal. Let me say it another way. If you don't deal with your sin intentionally, your sin will deal with you eventually. If you don't deal with your sin intentionally, your sin will deal with you eventually. The sin of Moses is so common. In fact, it is so common that many of us don't even see it as rebellion. Moses just had arrogant anger, anger that welled up inside of him. Who doesn't get angry? Who doesn't get arrogant? Who doesn't have pride from time to time? All of us could testify. There are times we say things we ought not to say, and we may even say it at a volume that we ought not to say it at. We understand arrogant anger. And in fact, it's so widespread that many of us say it's not that big of a deal because everybody gets angry. Husbands get angry at their wives. They yell at them, trying to quote unquote put her in her place. Wives get angry at their husbands, scream and shout. Ain't no man gonna talk to me like that, right? Parents get angry with their children, fly off at the handle. Sometimes they even do things that in retrospect they think to themselves, how in the world could I have said that? How in the world could I have done that? Siblings get angry with each other. A brother yells at a sister. A sister yells at a brother. Coaches get angry. They go into a verbal tirade because a player did not execute at a proper level. Bosses, they get angry. They rake somebody over the coals. They belittle and berate them. Co-workers get angry with each other. Neighbors get angry with each other. Family members get angry with each other. Don't even speak for years to come. And sometimes we live in a culture that almost praises this type of arrogant anger, especially in leadership. Because people say, wow, now there's a strong leader. He or she will not take any lip from anybody. He or she will put that individual in his or her place 
making sure that all the people of the company toe the line, making sure that nobody uh, gets askew or goes off scale, making sure that everybody does what they're supposed to do. That's strong leadership. And we praise it in sports. A coach will just really rip into somebody will say, that's a great coach. He's really not putting up with anything than excellence. No, he's not. He's just calling that guy everything under the sun. Nothing beneficial to that. Just tearing him down, not building him up. But we praise it in sports. We praise it in the marketplace. We praise it in companies. We even sometimes praise it in the home. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'll give them a piece of my mind. I'll raise my voice and strike fear into them. We, we even praise it in our friendship relationships. Don't anybody mess with him. Don't anybody mess with her or her wrath. His anger will be targeted towards you. It's almost as if we celebrate and praise this. So we come to this story of Numbers chapter 20. We see it in Moses' life and we think to ourselves, well, it's not that big of a deal. Everybody gets angry and some of us actually want to applaud him because he is putting those know-it-alls in their place. It was Chuck Swindoll in his biography of Moses who said, don't think for one minute that this is an isolated incident. Don't think that this is just Moses having one bad day and every other day of his life for the last 120 years have been stellar righteous days. No, he's been dealing with this all of his life. Let me rephrase. He hasn't been dealing with this all of his life. And because he hasn't been dealing with it, it's about to deal with him. Because if you don't deal with your sin intentionally, your sin will deal with you eventually. And that's what happened to Moses. It is Chuck Swindoll who says that Moses had murderous anger in Exodus chapter 2. It's there where he sees that injustice of the Hebrew, uh, the, the Egyptian taskmaster beating the Hebrew slave. And so he wants to stand up to the injustice. Nothing wrong with that. But he goes up and instead what wells up inside of him is rage and anger and he strikes the man. Now sometimes that even may be uh, plausible, but I don't think that he stopped with one punch. I think he got on top of the man and just started continuing to waylay on his head until he beat the life out of this man. And when he realized that the dirty deed had been done, then he buried the evidence in the sand. Chuck Swindoll says that was murderous anger. No reason for all that rage to come up inside of Moses. You get to a place like Exodus chapter 11. There's unnecessary anger. He goes and stands in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's already been doing the dance. You know the dance that says, I'll let your people go. No, I won't. I'll let them go. No, I won't. I'll let them go. No, I won't. Moses is frustrated with that. He goes in once again under the direction of God and God says, deliver this message. And it says in Exodus chapter 11 that after he delivered the message, Moses walked out and I quote, in hot anger. Chuck Swindoll says that's unnecessary. There's no reason. You're just the servant of God. Just go in and deliver the message. No reason for all that uh, anger to well up inside of you. And then here in our passage, it's rebellious anger. It's not that Moses didn't understand. I know he's 120 years old and some people say he's hard of hearing and he's deaf. He's an old man. He didn't hear what God said. Yes, he did. God is not fickle. Moses is not fuzzy. He's been speaking to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend for years. He knows what God said. And in rebellion, he doesn't speak to the rock. He raises the staff and in arrogant anger, he strikes it. 
Not once, but twice. I think that along the way, I think that God must have brought this to the attention of Moses. Moses, you're going to have to surrender your anger to me. Moses, I'm tender towards you. But one day, um, we're going to draw the line in the sand. Moses, I'm patient with you, but I'm not a pushover. Moses, we've got to deal with this. You've got to surrender this to me. And all the while, Moses refused. He refused. In his mind, it was a forgotten flaw, and a forgotten flaw can be fatal. It's at this moment that I hope the Spirit of God is working in you right now because some of you can relate to Moses. You know what it is to have arrogant anger well up inside of you. You know what it is to have verbal vomit as you spew it on your spouse and on your children and on your coworkers and on your employees. You know what it is to have rage that builds up inside of you, and you have no intention of ever really dealing with it it's at this moment that I need to tell you that at the invitation time the altar should be full where individuals come and say God I know you're patient but you're not a pushover and before before it's too late I want to say enough is enough I surrender unto you my sin and maybe it is a sin of anger but maybe it's not maybe it's a sin of lust brother or sister you've been dealing with lust and pornography for the last 40 years Enough is enough. Some of you say, well, it's not, it's not lust, it's, it's greed. It's greed. Brother or sister, you've been dealing with greed since your teenage years. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe you just can't keep a tight rein on the tongue. Well, you need to surrender that two-ounce slab of membrane unto the Lord and give him your tongue and let him be in charge of what you say and what you don't say. Just because it comes in your mind, it doesn't have to come out of your mouth. I thought I'd get an amen. I really did. Some of us need to surrender whatever the sin is that so easily entangles us because I'm telling you, brother or sister, either you deal with it intentionally or your sin will deal with you eventually. That's what happened in the life of Moses. God said, enough is enough. This is not a singular event. This is a lifelong problem. God's been patient, but he's not a pushover. So the first observation is simply that forgotten flaws can be fatal. There's a second observation, that human disobedience forfeits divine blessing. Human disobedience forfeits divine blessing. There's a similar story, yet it's uh, rather significantly different in Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus 17, there's another no water story. In Exodus 17, it happens at the beginning of the wilderness wanderings. And here in Numbers 20, it happens at the end of the wilderness wanderings. But there's no water. And the people cry out. And Moses goes to God. And in Exodus 17, God said, strike the rock. Here in Numbers 20, he said, speak to the rock. Now, I've heard the old preacher You've heard the old preacher, the old preacher who says in a very allegorical, symbolic way that the reason God said strike it at first and then speak to it second is because you only have to strike the rock once. And that implication is that the rock is Jesus Christ and he only has to be crucified one time. No reason for him to be crucified again. So just strike him once. You don't have to strike him again. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But this much I do know, God has a prerogative the first time to say strike it and the second time to say speak to it regardless. Moses said, I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to do it however I want to do it. And so he comes and he strikes the rock. 
Not once, but twice. God said, enough's enough, two strikes you out. You will not lead these people into the promised land. You did not regard me as holy. You did not trust me enough. And at the basis of obedience is trust. You did not trust me. You did not regard me as holy. You did not take me at my word. So because of that, you will not lead these people into the promised land. Now today I want to be very clear of what God meant when he said, you will not lead these people in the promised land. What he meant was this. You will not lead these people in the promised land. He didn't mean anything more. He didn't mean anything less. So some people have said, well, if he didn't lead them into the promised land, then maybe Moses wasn't forgiven or maybe he's not in the promised land. Maybe he's not in heaven. No, Moses is forgiven and Moses is in heaven. And the way that I know that is because in Luke chapter nine on the mountain of transfiguration, it's Jesus, Peter, James, and John who go up on a mountain. Jesus is transfigured and there uh, the glory of Lord uh, shines through him and two visitors from heaven show up. One is Elijah and the other is Moses because Jesus is the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets and they speak to him about his upcoming exodon the great departure that's going to take place in Jerusalem where Jesus will be a greater Moses and he'll deliver us not from Egyptian captivity but deliver us from the shackles of sin and they talk to Jesus and then they return to heaven so because of that I know that Moses is in heaven right now so for God to say you're not going to lead the people in the promised land that doesn't mean that God did not forgive Moses And it doesn't mean that Moses somehow didn't make it to heaven. Yes, he did. He's there this very, this very day. But what does it mean? It means that human disobedience forfeits divine blessing. It would have been such a blessing from God to lead the people in the promised land. But because of his defiant disobedience, God said, enough's enough. No, I'm not going to let you do this. And Moses forfeited divine blessing. There's a biblical truth that needs to be spoken and needs to be heeded in this moment. The biblical truth is this, that forgiveness will remove sin, but it will not remove consequences. The forgiveness of God will remove sin, but it will not remove consequences. I talk to people like you talk to people and they say, why is it that I have to go through this? And we begin to talk and begin to unravel what's happened. And we say, you know what? Ultimately, it's a consequence for a decision that was made in your past. It's not that God has a vendetta against you. It's not that somehow he's out to get you. No, God has removed your condemnation. He's taken away your eternal separation from God. But he says that my grace is sufficient for your sin, but nowhere does he promise that that grace will remove consequences. Adam and Eve were forgiven, but they still could not live in the Garden of Eden. David was forgiven, but his house was still a wreck. Paul was forgiven, but he still had the thorn in his side. Moses was forgiven, but he still could not lead the people into the promised land. Human disobedience forfeits divine blessing. Every action carries a reaction. And the way God has set it up is that when we obey him, it brings about a positive reaction. And when we disobey him, it brings about a negative reaction. And God's grace has never promised to remove those consequences. Third observation, rather quickly. The third observation simply stated is that we need another redeemer. 
We need another liberator. Moses is good, but he's not great. We need a liberator. We need a redeemer who's aware with flaws, but one who is flawless. We need a redeemer who's aware with our, of our sin, but one who is sinless. We need a redeemer who did not come to abolish the law, but one who came to fulfill the law. We need a redeemer who comes and dies in the place of our condemnation and by his death gives us life eternal. In other words, we need Jesus. Jesus is the greatest deliverer. He is the greatest redeemer. In fact, the author of the Hebrew letter says, there is one who's of greater worth than Moses. His name is Jesus. Jesus came to rescue us from the shackles of our sin. Jesus came to liberate us from our bondage. Jesus came and he is sinless. Jesus came and he'll never disappoint us. Jesus came and he'll always successfully lead us. Jesus came and he is perfect. And in Jesus, we have the righteousness of Christ applied to our life. I say it often, but I mean it every time I say it. I mean it from the top of my head to the bottom of my little toe. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the Son the rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Like you, I need Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest redeemer. So now it's time for you to respond. How do you respond to this passage from Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 to 13? Well, I'll tell you this much. You and I need to learn what Moses did not know. And we need to learn what Moses refused to learn. For Moses refused to realize that a forgotten flaw can be fatal. Listen, if you don't deal with your sin intentionally, that sin will deal with you eventually. So this morning, friend, Whatever the sin is that so easily entangles, you come. The moment the first note is struck, you come and get right with your Redeemer. And also, before we walk out of here, let's just know that our human disobedience forfeits divine blessing. Let's say it in a positive way. Our obedience to Christ welcomes divine blessing. So you and I are to be individuals who follow the righteous Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And I'm just convinced, Holy Spirit, that you're doing some work in people's heart and minds. And they're realizing some sin that creeps up on a regular basis. And it's been doing it for years. And today, enough's enough. Father, I pray that many people will put a stake in the sand today and say enough is enough. Whatever the sin is, anger, lust, lying, gossip, deception, whatever it is, today enough's enough. And oh God, we pray that we will take hold of the one who's taken hold of us. I pray that today that we will cling to the righteous redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We give this invitation. Please move. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.